Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. When I was a teenager, the average Friday night was built around conflict and argument. Now, not conflict around the dinner table or on the playing field, but a battle that raged in the aisles of video rental stores across the country. What movie should we rent? These robust disagreements often pitted low-budget horror against romance and science fiction against prestigious dramas. These battles were first fought in mom-and-pop video rental stores and later under the fluorescent lights of big chains like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. Of course, the age of the video home system was relatively short-lived. The introduction of the DVD pushed the clunky VHS tape into the trash heap of history, and then a little company called Netflix upended the whole landscape. But there was a brief and glorious moment when people first had a chance to choose what movies they would watch in the comfort of their own homes, and a chance to endlessly argue about that choice. This was the VHS revolution, and it changed the nature of the global entertainment industry. I'm Kendall Phillips, and on this episode of Pop Life, we will dust off our old cassettes, plug in the yellow and red wires, and manually adjust the tracking to examine the impact of the VHS on popular culture. Here to help us in our examination is Dr. Johnny Walker. Dr. Walker is an associate professor in the Department of Art at Northumbria University in the United Kingdom. He has published several books related to horror and popular culture, and his most recent book is Rewind, Replay, Britain and the Video Boom, 1978 to 1992. Johnny, welcome to Pop Life. Kendall, thank you so, so much. Honestly, mate, I'm so excited to be here. And well, any occasion to speak to you, frankly, is, a, is an event. But uh, this feels extra special. It is extra special. And as I said uh, before we got started, I think Johnny is our first international guest on Pop Life. So we're, uh, we're all uh, uh, giving you a round of applause for uh, traveling <laughs> through Zoom all the way across the pond. Uh, but I do want to get started with uh, thinking about the VHS. And I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about VHS and its impact on the, the broader entertainment industry and all the ways it changed the way we make movies and the way we watch movies. But can you talk to us a little bit about when and how VHS kind of first entered into the global market? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, the the video home system, as as it were, or rather the 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 Betamax system before it, was a phenomenon, or they're both phenomena of the of the mid nineteen seventies, really. Um, and they're introduced onto the U.S. market in nineteen seventy six, and then start to globally penetrate in the in the late nineteen seventies in the U.K. in 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 nineteen seventy eight. And it was just a, a phenomenal game changer, really, because prior to that, if you wanted to watch a movie, well, you had, well, you could do two things: you could go to the movies <laughs> and and pay and pay money to to do that, or you could experiment with um, super eight millimeter or eight millimeter film and watch edited highlights of some of your favorite movies. But I mean, that was by no means a widespread cultural practice it was very much something that was reserved for the the diehard movie fan or somebody who was interested in in film um hardware specifically and the vcr the video cassette recorder really it's a cliche to say it but it really democratized um cinema uh, home cinema for so many people and um yeah made made the something that we take for granted now being able to watch a, a movie when we want 
um, a reality for for so many people. I and mean, it all started in the in the late seventies. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember that period because I am old, uh, and I do remember it quite vividly. And one of the things you mentioned, but but I kind of remember very vividly, was that competition between different kinds of media. So there was you know Betamax. There was VHS. I can even recall the laser discs. And I remember my parents, who were notoriously cheap <laughs> and did not want to spend a dime on anything that would not be maximum value for money, uh, were very hesitant because there was this anxiety about, well, if we pick the wrong thing and that doesn't end up being the dominant market you know, driven product, then you end up with something that doesn't work. So can you say a little more about these various uh, kind of types of home video and then how VHS eventually became the dominant form. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, there, there, there were many. Um, you, you listed um, some of them. I mean, the, the reason that uh, VHS and for a while uh, Betamax uh, were, were essentially the, the two competing formats was because you could uh, record over them if you if you wanted to. And that was the real commercial driver, at least initially, um, of those formats was that, well, you can take the cassette and you can, uh, what we call time shift, you can stick it in the VCR, record something off the TV, and then watch it back. And the famous um, advertising line for the Sony uh, Betamax was watch, was watch what you want uh, when you want. And that's why, for example, VHS um, lasted longer than something like Laserdisc did. Because with Laserdisc, of course, you couldn't record over that format. And there are a couple of other formats, actually, that uh, some people forget about, and one of which, at least, didn't make it to the US. So one of them is the video disc, which did have a life uh, in 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 the, in the United States before the Laserdisc in the uh, in the in the early to mid nineteen eighties. It looked like a a, a huge floppy disk. That's what they. That's what they looked like, and they were, you know, huge and 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 clunky, and the quality of the image was just dreadful. So that really <laughs> didn't stand a chance. But what, one format that um, it it still baffles me really why this didn't um, take hold of the consumer imagination was the video two thousand format. Does that ring any bells for you? No, but I'm surprised my parents didn't buy that since it didn't last. So what 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 well, was the, the video 2000 format? Well, the video 2000 format was basically it was like a, it was magnetic tape like the VHS, like the Betamax format, but like a music cassette, you could flip it over. So it was the size of a VHS cassette, but it was double-sided and it held 8 hours of footage. Uh it was manufactured by the European company Philips. And it lasted for about two years <laughs> because, wow. of course, by that time, by the mid 80s, VHS was clear, you know, the clear winner in the marketplace. Was there sure. something about VHS that that gave it that edge or was it just availability? Like, why does of all these options, some of which sound much more interesting, why does VHS become overwhelmingly the dominant global form? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, initially, uh, the, the Betamax format w would only hold about an hour of content, 60 minutes, whereas VHS, you could always hold two hours. So I think it, it had the edge um, in terms of um, usability, given that people were time shifting primarily in the, in the early days. So I think that's one of the main reasons. But also, I mean, you know, like a lot of these things, it was just uh, fortuitous on part of the, the manufacturer of the VHS system, JVC. They just managed to to, to strike lucky. And, um, it, you know, it's an age old thing, but um, we all know 
that the Betamax format was superior <laughs> and the image was sharper. Um, but the VHS format looked out. And, you know, that's not to say that Betamax didn't stop being produced. They were, but they were used primarily in television um, to, to archive TV shows, given that the quality was so was, was so superior to VHS. Yeah, it's like VHS became the consumer brand and Betamax became the professional. Now, one of the things I know you talk about in your book is, and you mentioned earlier, the kind of rapid rate of market penetration um, for the VHS. Like once it got going, it did seem to me, you know, growing up in that period, that it went from the one or two wealthy families you knew had one of these devices and it was, ooh, ah, look at that. And then it seemed within a matter of months, everybody had. It was almost required, like the microwave oven and the refrigerator, you had to have a VCR. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how rapid that penetration was? It was, I mean, very, well, very rapid. Once it got going, it was, it, it was, it was very, very rapid. Um, in, in the mid-1970s, a gentleman by the name of Andre Blay uh, famously licensed a number of films from 20th Century Fox um, in the States and released, I want to say, about 20 titles onto the onto the VHS format in 1976. So there was this sort of slow buildup for about two, maybe two and a half years. But then, you know, by the time you get the 1979, I mean, um, it booms in the United Kingdom. Um, it's booming in the US. It's booming in uh, Japan. So like once the, the match was struck and um, consumers cottoned on to the fact that there's this new technology, which not only enables me to rent movies, which of course was a huge, was a huge novelty at the time, but also um, to, to record things off the, off the TV. I mean, it was a technological revelation and you can see why something of that nature would would catch on so quickly because you know it you know you know without wanting to put too fine a point on it it really did revolutionize uh people's lives or at least their lives in relation to for instance um television scheduling for instance uh where you know we were no longer slaves to the uh <laughs> to, to to tv schedules but we could essentially choose our own um, schedules. It was, you know, hugely uh, revelatory for so many of us. Yeah, and I think your point earlier about it being democratizing was really crucial because it meant you could choose what you watched when you watched and not be beholden either to the movie theater schedule or, as you say, to the TV schedule or, and you get to watch what you – you kind of did have that freedom, uh, which is, I guess, in some ways similar to the cassette – the audio cassette tape, which also allowed you to record and mix and match and do what you want. But one of the things I think interesting in your book is you talk about you know the, the global penetration, but the focus in, in the book is largely on the experience of the UK. So I'm wondering if you talk a little about some of the ways that the UK experience of the VHS revolution was different than, say, the American. American uh, experience. Absolutely. Well, I mean, thank you for the, thank you for the question. I think the the chief difference, and and I say this to to my uh, friends across the pond, and they they can't believe this, but the the VHS boom, the video revolution in Britain, was was very much a, a working class phenomenon. Now, I know we talk about the mom and pops stores in the U.S. context for sure, but the working classes gravitated towards video in Britain more so than anywhere else in the world, at least initially. And this was largely due to the fact that, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher was pr presiding over a, a pretty 
ruthless um, state of affairs in the UK, whereby there was, you know, recession, mass unemployment, people were getting uh, paid off of their, from their jobs and, and, and such like. And what a lot of people did with their severance money was either purchasing consumer electronics because they had very little else to do, or they would invest it in video technology insofar as they would maybe open a video store for instance. So at all levels, at least initially within Britain, video was this sort of widespread working class phenomenon that wasn't just reserved for the um, you know, for the for the middle to upper classes who had the disposable income, the yuppies if you like, to 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 splash the cash. And one other key difference is that, and I as I understand it, this wasn't the case in the US, people in Britain would routinely rent their hardware as well as the video software and that was a phenomenon in the uk whereby very few people would actually buy the machine they would you know rent it um for for a certain amount of money a month which really did help the the format become democratized because it truly was accessible to all even in thatcher's britain is that part of why, uh, and I guess when I think of, uh, again, some of your work and, and the broader conversations about you know video in the UK, is that part of why there was this kind of uh, moral panic, I guess, around the kinds of movies here? I'm thinking about what is often called the video nasties, these idea that Absolutely. certain videotapes were too dangerous and they needed to be censored. Was part of that you know, intertwined with the sense that VHS culture was very working class? Absolutely. It was. I mean, you, you couldn't be more right about that, Kendall. That was precisely the issue. Because the working classes gravitated towards video, those in power worried that they weren't in control of this new area. I mean, one of the things that you need to remember is that in Britain, and this is slightly different to the, slightly different to the US context, all films that are exhibited in the UK must pass through the British Board of Film Classification or the British Board of Film Censors, as it was once known. When video boomed, you know, um, likes of Thatcher, moralists such as Mary Whitehouse, shortly, um, or rather, rather rapidly realized that video wasn't regulated. And not only was it not regulated, it was hugely popular with the working classes, which of course, in the eyes of the, the conservative government of the time was hugely problematic because you had normal everyday people being able to, for example, show their kids horror films allegedly and, um, and you know, not control what types of material uh, their children were accessing. And in the media, it was crazy. I mean, you know, horror films were being likened, were being equated with hard drugs, for instance. The notion that a video store owner was similar somehow to somebody pushing heroin on the streets. It was bananas, the situation. It was crazy. So you could have the hills have eyes or you could have heroin. Which would which do would you rather give? Your <laughs> now, I, I'm curious about this. Is Were the most of the video nasties horror? My sense is that's always the ones I hear talked about, but of course that's the world I, I live in. Um, were there other kinds of categories of films that were routinely put on this kind of video nasties list? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the thing the thing about the whole video nasties panic was, 
I mean, you know, academics are still struggling with notions of genre even to this day, right? So if you <laughs> ask an academic to define a horror film, that's going to be a very long and tedious conversation. Imagine the British constabulary doing that <laughs> in the 1980s, trying to identify films that are potentially offensive. So you had all sorts of films that were being brought into the to, to, to the fray by the nature of their title. So famously, um, the film The Big Red One was uh, was um, was seized <laughs> because of a potential double entendre. Uh, the best little whorehouse in Texas was also seized for for a period until you know the, the the cops came to their senses. But if you if you go down the list of the films that were eventually banned, and there were thirty nine titles that were eventually banned. Um, there are a number of horror films on there for sure, and I would say that the majority are horror films. But there are also a number of um, exploitation films, uh, for want of a better word, dealing with otherwise serious issues, such as Fight for Your Life, for instance, which is a essentially a, a, a pent-up race relations drama. Uh, but that found itself banned as well. So there really wasn't a rhyme or reason. Um, if a film was deemed offensive arbitrarily, by whoever was making those decisions, it found itself in the firing line. So one of the things I know you, you've written about in, in other works, and I think you talk about it in this new book as well, is the, the impact of the VHS on the ability of you know, for filmmakers now to kind of bypass the traditional distribution and they don't have to look for a motion picture theater. They can sort of put films essentially straight or directly to video. How did that impact the broader kind of entertainment industry? Oh well, I mean that's a that's a great question, and and certainly what what you're talking about there was there was a huge um, a huge presence of that kind of stuff shot on video stuff um, in the U.S. context for sure, because video was was so popular, and because the the major studios you know famously were often quite hesitant about releasing certain films uh, to video, and a lot of the time. The, the, the films that were released to video were, say, a few years old, there was this huge demand for content. And because there was a boom in video consumer electronics, home cinema stuff, all of a sudden there was this market for films, um, oftentimes horror films, but films in other genres as well. And video distributors, a lot of the time, would take whatever people were willing to give them. <laughs> and if that was a film that you'd made in your backyard with your friends, providing that they could package it up with a lurid cover or whatever, <laughs> you know, that, that gave, um, that democratized cinema as well. Um, and, and a lot of the, you know, the horror filmmakers that we talk about today that maybe made their way in the 1990s, for, for example, cut their teeth on that amateur shot on video stuff, some of which managed to secure formal distribution. And I mean, that still happens today. I mean, if you look, you know, all you need to do is spend 10 minutes on Amazon Prime, for example, <laughs> type in horror, and you stumble across, you know, some of the most egregious, <laughs> dreadful <laughs> films ever made by anybody, but they're up there and they're being distributed. And some people um, are watching them. However, you know, however niche that audience is, they're still being seen. 
I mean, it almost seemed to me like particularly in that period, I agree with you that that, that still goes on now, but I, I particularly remember that period of, I guess, what I would characterize as the 1980s and, and all of those very shocking titles uh, and all of those great illustrated covers that often had no resemblance whatsoever to what was actually in the movie. Um, <laughs> but there was a kind of, I don't know, there's a kind of quality to that filmmaking. I almost, I think in some ways there's almost, I almost feel a nostalgia for that kind of very do-it-yourself uh, shot on a shoestring kind of budget. Did that kind of develop its own subcultural kind of subcult fan? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing is, you know, he, here I am, sort of, you know, slating the amateur amateur filmmaking in the in the 1980s. I mean, I, 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 I'm doing that with the, my tongue firmly in my cheek. In fact, <laughs> a lot of the time, you see, so a film like Blood Cult, for instance, which was a slasher film released in 1985, claiming itself to be the first made-for-video horror film. And it was shot on video, but it was shot by a television company who routinely made things for television, and it was cut on, you know, professional systems and stuff. So even though, yes, I mean, it, it looks a bit amateurish, you know, it, it only looks amateurish insofar as the fact it wasn't shot on 35 or on 16. Otherwise, it's a pretty technically proficient film. I mean, we, you know, we can't say that for... <laughs> every one of those shot on video horror films. But there are a number, say, that were cut in local news studios out of hours <laughs> when, the, when, when nobody else was, was, in, was in the building or whatever. But yeah, for sure. I mean, there is a huge cult following for that stuff now. And it's not just ironic, parasynomatic cultists who, 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 like, who appreciate this stuff ironically. Some of these films are celebrated for being in their own ways iconic cornerstone films that essentially changed the game it almost reminds me of that period in in the before that in the 70s where you had folks like toby hooper or george romero sort of able to cobble together a, a hearty group of folks to go out in the woods somewhere and and film what would become kind of iconic films that that in a lot of those films of of the straight to video era the, the ideas certainly outstrip the execution, but at least the ideas were interesting. Yeah, for sure. And and you're absolutely right to draw that parallel as well with uh, with Toby Hooper and, and George Romero. Ultimately, you know, in the case of Hooper, in the case of Romero, and and the the amateur SOV folks that, that that followed in their wake, ultimately they're film enthusiasts, right? And they're wanting to make film, yes, I guess, for economic purposes, but chiefly to have a good time and to entertain people. And even today, those filmmakers, and I'm thinking like, for example, of a British guy called Jason Impey, who, who's made tens of horror films, all of which have been released, you know, they might be in some respects technically inept, but they're made with, a, with an infectious spirit um, to make films that are entertaining. And I think that's half the battle, to be honest, with a lot of this stuff, providing that you can see that it's made with <laughs> with a positive, sincere attempt to entertain. You know, th there's something admirable about that, I think. When it did start to create, you know, I, I think of Full Moon Features as sort of the, the iconic uh, straight-to-video uh, uh, studio that made so many amazing, iconic series. Uh, and, and I think there were probably others, but it definitely felt like it was kind of a fan base identity that you kind of bought into. Yes, the effects are not great, 
but the ideas are interesting and it becomes, uh, as you say, a kind of aesthetic that you, you learn to enjoy. So horror was obviously really big in, in the VHS revolution period. Uh, were there other genres that were particularly impacted by uh, this kind of easier access to uh, audiences? Yeah, absolutely. And well, I mean, pornography is the big one. You know, it's a cliche to say that horror and porn were the biggest sellers on on, on video, but it's true. I mean, vid- video and shot on video specifically revolutionized um, pornography. And there were, you know, there were a number of other attempts, say, to make, for example, shot on video westerns or shot on video comedies. But it has to be said that the majority of individuals who are making films on video were making either horror films or pornography because there has never been a moment in cinema history when either of those two genres have not been popular or lucrative in their own way. Well, they do see, I mean, I do think as well, uh, and I think you mentioned this somewhere in the book as well, that, that, that these are also genres that lend themselves to private viewing, right? That, that if you really yes. love, especially kind of cheap, more exploitation horror, or you're into certain forms of pornography, that those are the, that, that's the kind of, the audience that wants to watch that, they want to watch that, but it's not really going to capture the mainstream multiplex audience. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And I mean, certainly in the 1980s and, and, and even into the 90s, people were watching these uh, video cassettes on the tiniest screens imaginable. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, you were blowing one of these um, cheaply made exploitation films that were made for the video market, for instance. You weren't seeing them being blown up under 35 and then screened in cinemas. And Linda Williams writes about this, or Linda Ruth Williams, I should say, when she writes about the erotic thriller, she says that audiences for this stuff tend to be more forgiving. Sure. And the the smaller screen is also more forgiving of a limited a limited budget in a, in a way that the you know the the HD widescreen <laughs> is not. <laughs> yes, yes, the HD is a very unforgiving format and there did seem to be yeah, <laughs> as you say a kind of intimacy, a kind of forgiving, a kind of like a connection and now uh, we are seeing some of that come back at least I'm seeing in the US a kind of growing nostalgia for VHS. People really seem to yeah. be kind of wanting to recapture and they're trading and they want to, uh, as as happened with vinyl, people are kind of wanting now to have a VHS or VCR player in their home. Uh, what do you attribute that nostalgic? What is that coming from? It's amazing, isn't it? Because at least with <laughs> vinyl, you know, there, there is some sonic quality to vinyl that one cannot get through digital. <laughs> with VHS, it, it looks, I think, objectively terrible. But... <laughs> There is there is something about it, at least from a, a nostalgic perspective, or from the perspective of somebody who grew up with the VHS. I can relate to perhaps wanting to re-experience that time. And a lot of the time, I, I don't think the nostalgia is necessarily anchored to watching the film itself. It's more about the experiences that one had in the lead up to watching that movie, like going to the video store, for instance, having a conversation with the, with the clerk, speaking with your parents about what you could watch, what you <laughs> weren't allowed to watch. All of this stuff is, it, it, it is bound up to, well, for me at least, a formative, a formative childhood, right? And, you know, my memories of that period, sure, I, you know, I think about the films that I, that I watched, but the, the most fun I had was in the store choosing 
the film because it was an event. What I struggle to get my head around is the appeal among those too young to remember the video store experience and the VHS experience. What is to be gained from watching, for example, I don't know, Argento Suspiria <laughs> on, on, a, on a horrible cropped 4.3 version of Suspiria on VHS than, say, catching it on HD on Blu-ray or whatever. I, I, there's, there's a disconnect there that I, I can't quite get my, get my head around, to be honest. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. The, the nostalgia for the days when you were in the aisle and actually fighting, and it certainly can't be recaptured, you know, flipping between Hulu and Netflix. Like there's that, you just don't have yeah. the experience of, of meeting in the middle and everybody having three cassettes and everyone looking and going, I'm not watching that. <laughs> I might watch that. Absolutely. And you can never... And I must say, like I was just going to say that the, the the video store itself, I mean, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong if this doesn't relate to your experience, but my video shop had a had a specific smell that is just, you know, you cannot recreate. And I can still smell it now. It was it was just so tangible and and, and visceral almost, if that's the right word to use. And that's the kind of memory that, you know, nobody will nobody else other than me will be able to remember that unless they went to the same video store as me in the 90s or whatever. <laughs> no, there was, and certainly I felt here there was something very special about that early phase when it was the local shop. Now, eventually in the U.S., Blockbuster dominated everything, and so there was a smell of popcorn, but it was sort of a manufactured scent. But the good old days, and you sort of knew which rental store was better for foreign films and which was better for, you know, horror, which was better for mainstream or which which had the room in the back behind the curtain where you could find the things <laughs> that you were looking for. And certainly it was a very different culture. And I don't know that the nostalgia can recapture it. But Johnny, in order to avoid late fees here on Pop Life, we're going to shift our show to the final phase. Uh, where we're going to ask you to play a little game that we call the Fast Five. So Johnny, I'm going to ask you five either or questions. going to ask you to follow your heart and make choices all about the VHS culture. So number one, Johnny, which of these of the banned British video nasties would you have been most likely to risk prosecution to watch? Would it be <laughs> 1980s Cannibal in the Streets or 1981's aptly titled Don't Go in the Woods? Don't Go in the Woods. Is that that would I th I like a movie that tells you exactly what you should not do when you know fully well that they are going to do exactly that. Question number two for you, Absolutely. Johnny. Full Moon Features, as we were talking about, was a mainstay of the direct-to-video VHS uh, horror and science fiction market. Which of these was their crowning achievement? Was it the epic six-film evil toys cycle of Puppet Master or the four-part vampire saga of subspecies? What was the best Full Moon Features production? Oh, my God, it's <laughs> tough. That is so tough. I love subspecies, but I'm going to say Puppet Master. I think you have to go with the the drill-headed uh, puppet. That's uh, That has to go. So sticking with Full <laughs> Moon Feature, question number three, perhaps the greatest star of the Full Moon era was Tim Thomerson. So which of mm -hmm. his portrayals was most worthy of an Oscar nomination in your mind? Would it be as 23rd century detective Jack Death from the Trancers films or as the 13-inch tall space cop Brick Bardo from 1991's Dollman? Brick Bardo every day of the week. I love that film. I love Dollman to death. I love it. 
I think we're going to have to talk to the Academy and see if we can get a, a, a <laughs> retrospective uh, Oscar for Tim Thomerson. Question number four for you. Now, more recently, uh, as you know, horror filmmakers have been fascinated with the horrifying aspects of VHS culture. Uh, which of these VHS-inspired horror films are you most likely to watch on this coming Friday evening? Would it be the 2012 found footage horror anthology entitled simply VHS or the 2021 British psychological horror film Censor, whose protagonist is a British video censor during the Video Nasties era. Which of those movies are you most likely to watch this weekend? It's got to be Censor every time, Prono Billy Bond, legend. I knew that this is the British coming out in you. There's no way you were not going to pick <laughs> Censor. So finally, question number five for you. While the VHS era certainly featured a lot of horror and some low-budget science fiction, there were also plenty of action films. So who would you choose as the ideal action hero of the straight-to-video era? Would it be Lorenzo Lamas, uh, star of such classics as Snake Eater 3 and Bounty <laughs> Tracker, or Don the Dragon Wilson, star of Blood Fist 4, Die Trying, and Future Kick? Who is your action hero of the era? It's got to be Don the Dragon Wilson every time. <laughs> I like, And if only Don the Dragon Wilson had appeared in Censor, that would have made it the ultimate film. So, Johnny Walker, what uh, are you <laughs> loving in pop culture these days? What are you enjoying on television, in the movies? What are you listening to? What is on your pop culture radar? Right. Well, I, I mean, I have to say, and I was, I'm late to the party here with this, but I, I just caught Midnight Mass on Netflix. Absolutely blew me away. I thought that was absolutely phenomenal. Have you seen it? I have, and I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, yeah, uh, slow burn, and if you're willing to kind of follow along with it, I think it's it's an amazing film, so, so a great choice, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's got some twists and turns in that that I just did not see coming, and it's the first time in a long time when I've really been uh, gripped to a, um, to, to a, to a good old-fashioned horror narrative. Absolutely loved it. No, that's great. Anything else you're listening to? Any any music? Any books you're reading? What's going on across yeah, the pond we should know about? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the thing is, I've been I'm stuck in the past to be to, to be honest, Kendall. <laughs> I've been revisiting, and don't judge me, please, uh, or any of your listeners. Um, I've been revisiting Andrew W. K., who was a sort of like a sort of a one-man solo rock performer from the early 2000s who had a major label uh, breakthrough. But subsequently, in the last 20 years, has become this sort of weird, esoteric, emotional speaker. And his, uh, <laughs> and his ethos is about partying, it's about having a good time, and it's about being kind and generous to one another. Well, Johnny, I can say that the the folks in the booth are giving a thumbs up. I'm going to be honest. I'm judging you, but you have been an amazingly good time, and we've loved having <laughs> you here on Pop Life. Uh, thank you for getting us uh, down the uh, memory lane here with VHS. Uh, and I'll remind our listeners, as always, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us on social media. We are at WAER on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kendall Phillips reminding you to be kind and rewind. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.